I mean, Easter's too big, isn't it? There's so many events that happen around Easter they don't all just fit into. Even though we get two public holidays off, they don't all fit into that time. So um, you might have heard that saying that confusion is the first step towards clarity. Confusion's the first step towards clarity. Um, and that's often true, I think. So I got a phone call at 7.40 this morning and I'm thinking... Who's ringing me at 7.40? Normally only my mum rings at this time to tell me how she's gone in Quirtle or Wordle that day. And um, I was sitting outside eating breakfast and I even I saw John Bly. I even thought about not answering it. <laughs> I'm happily eating breakfast. And at first I thought, well, we've been having problems with the PA system. Uh, Josh and I had done some work on it on uh, Thursday and then we hadn't tested it as well as we might have. And John had tested it yesterday and worked out how to fix it. And I thought, ah, oh, his fix hasn't worked. He's going to want me to come up and you know, help out at 9 o'clock to, to make sure that the PA system's working. Um, so that's what I thought. But then when, he ans- when I answered the phone and he said, I've got COVID, suddenly there was clarity. Some- suddenly I understood what he was ringing about and it wasn't hard to work out what to do after that. Being stuck in confusion is not a great place to be. But moving to a place of clarity where you can see clearly is really freeing and exciting. And I wonder if in your life as a Christian, maybe you can think of a time when you've had one of those moments. When, as Chris described before, when the lights come on or the pennies dropped and something that you were confused about and you hadn't understood has become clear. You've got it. You've understood it. And it's a great feeling when that happens. Well... This is what happens today in our passage today for Jesus' disciples. They move from confusion to clarity. They move from confusion about Jesus' resurrection, confusion about what they are supposed to do, and confusion about Jesus' identity. They move from confusion to clarity. And what we'll see today is that Jesus appears in the body, Jesus announces his mission, and that Jesus ascends to reign. And as they're given clarity about Jesus' resurrection, his mission, his identity, the end result of that is great joy. They worship him and are continually praising God. So that's what we're considering today as we come to this last part of Luke's Gospel. Now if you were here last Sunday, uh, we looked at the transformation of those two disciples. They were walking away from Jerusalem towards Emmaus and they were in despair. But then... When they met Jesus, they were transformed and they came back as the, and you know, excited as they understood the events of Easter. And this week, we'll see that same kind of transformation take place for a larger group of disciples. And it happens firstly as Jesus appears before them. So we've got our, our three um, points there. And the first one is that Jesus appears in the body. Where we begin today, this is still Easter Sunday. A confusing day, you'd have to say, for the disciples. They'd seen Jesus crucified two days earlier, and then this morning they'd heard a report from the women that the tomb was empty. And then later that afternoon, Peter had said that they'd seen Jesus. And then they had the other two disciples run back from Emmaus, saying that they'd seen Jesus as well. You can imagine how confusing that would all be. And in John's Gospel, he tells us about Thomas, doubting Thomas, who says, well, unless I can see him myself, I'm not going to believe. Which is what I imagine most of us would be thinking if we were in their shoes. 
But now Jesus himself appears and confronts these confused disciples. Um, Have a look at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of amazement and joy, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. So this is the first time that larger group of disciples are confronted with the reality of the risen Jesus. Jesus himself stands among them. Now this is Easter Sunday in the night time. And he wishes them peace. Peace be with you. But Jesus' peace wish doesn't seem to really have the desired effect immediately because the last thing they feel is peace. Instead, verse 37 says, they were startled and frightened, thinking they'd seen a ghost. Despite having just heard reports of Jesus being alive from Peter and the Emmaus disciples, and despite Jesus' words of assurance, they were terrified, thinking they'd seen a ghost. Now, I don't normally like watching uh, horror movies uh, where things jump out at you. Even though the music swells to tell you that something bad's about to happen, when it actually does, it's still a shock. These guys have been on edge for three to four days with all the events that have happened. And so when Jesus suddenly appears, it is terrifying for them. But Jesus here confronts them and calms them and then turns their confusion into clarity. In verse 38, he acknowledges their confusion. He says, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Now, Jesus actually thinks that this confusion and doubting is a very strange response from his disciples. I mean, hadn't they been listening when he said that this must happen? That he would be handed over to um, the judges and to be crucified? And that on the third day he would rise again? But he's patient with them. And he gives them proof that it's really him. Have a look at the repetition in verse 39. He says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. It's me. It really is me. And then he adds the sense of touch to sight to further verify his identity. He offers his flesh and his bones as tangible evidence that he is not a spirit or a ghost. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see, I have. Now, Luke doesn't tell us if anyone actually took Jesus up on this offer, but what is clear is that Jesus here appears before them in a physical body. Now, it's a transformed body. Jesus can do things in his resurrection body that we can't do, like he appears in the room without coming through the door. But it's a physical body, recognisable with who they had seen and followed in the years before. And to help them believe... Jesus continues to offer more and more evidence that really is him. He now says, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. And here as he has this meal with them, the disciples are confronted with the reality of the risen Jesus. Raised in the body and recognised by the disciples as he shows them proof after proof of his resurrection from the dead. 
I love what he says about their response in verse 30, 41. They still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Friends, you might find it hard to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I know that I have never seen anybody rise from the dead and you probably haven't seen anyone rise from the dead either. Some of you might have been thinking, well, there's no God and so people don't rise from the dead and so Jesus didn't rise from the dead and so these events didn't happen. And that's a pretty reasonable thing to think. And even if people do talk about someone doing something miraculous these days, you know, like on YouTube or something like that, we're immediately sceptical, aren't we? We're immediately thinking, oh, what's the trick going to be here? Is this person going to be asking for money or wants me to follow them or do something or join their something or other? But maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Jesus, these events did happen. And so Jesus did rise from the dead. And someone does rise from the dead. And there is a God. Because if there's a God who wants to reach down and make himself known to us, isn't rising something from the dead maybe some one way that he might do that? Some big, out-in-the-open thing that people could see. Now, if you remember back to the start of Luke's Gospel, in chapter 1, Luke tells us, that what he is doing is drawing up an orderly account of what has been handed down by those who were eyewitnesses so that we might know the centrality of the things that we have been taught. One thing that stands out for me from this encounter between Jesus and his disciples is that they're so slow to believe, which shows that the very last thing that they would ever thought of doing is making up a story like this. No, the only reason they believe that Jesus rose And the only reason they speak of this news is because he appeared to them. Not just to Peter, not just to two on the road, but to this larger group. And, as we heard in 1 Corinthians 15, to an even larger group. 500 people at one time. And had you got that letter from Paul at that time, you could have gone and talked to most of them. Because most of them are still alive. And so we are able to see that there are these witnesses to the risen Jesus. And it's this appearing that clarifies for them the remarkable truth that they were totally unprepared for, that Jesus really did rise from dead on the third day. Now let's look at the second part where Jesus starts to announce announce his mission. Not only are they given clarity about Jesus being raised, but Jesus now speaks to them and gives them clarity of what they should do. As we keep reading, he now commissions them for the task of being his witnesses to the world, to proclaim him and the gospel of forgiveness to all nations. Have a look from verse 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, this section in verse 44 is probably likely another day, not uh, Easter Sunday anymore, 
we know that Jesus was with his disciples and teaching them for 40 days after he was raised. And so these verses here are a summary of what Jesus would have taught over that period. We saw last week how Jesus explained to the Emmaus disciples how everything written in the Old Testament was about him. And that's what he teaches this larger group of disciples in these 40 days. And here in verse 46, Jesus gives his own summary of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets and the Psalms. He says that this is what it's all about. He says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Now last week we spoke about uh, this idea of the whole of the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. And for John, personally, this was something he said that he didn't really learn about till he came to uni, till he went to uni church. He said that before that he knew the Bible, he grew up in a church, but he never saw how it all centred and was fulfilled in Jesus. For him, growing up, the Bible was a series of disconnected stories. And he said that he didn't know that it all fitted together. And it was such a moment of clarity for him when he came to understand that it's actually all one big story. And the climax of the story and the hero of the story is Jesus. And John says it makes such a difference when you see this. And here's an example that John gave of that. He remembers as a kid probably a teenager in church, hearing a sermon on the book of Jonah. And the preacher at the time telling him about a story of another person about a hundred years ago who had been swallowed by a fish and who had survived. And there were pictures of the man having survived. And that really struck with John. And the preacher said that the main point of the sermon was, well, there's this guy that that happened to in the Bible, that happened to Jonah, And then there's this other guy that happened 100 years ago, and we've got photos from that. So because of that, it helps you to believe that what the Bible says. Now, it's good to know that this happened, that some guy got swallowed by a fish and survived, and that there's pictures. That's good information. But that is not what the story is about of Jonah. Jesus himself even draws a comparison from us. For he says that just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying that Jonah is all about him. That what we see in Jesus is a better Jonah. That Jesus is God's fulfilment of Jonah. So how does that work? Well, Jesus is the messenger sent by God, who goes willingly, unlike Jonah, willingly to call his enemies to repentance. He's God's messenger who embodies God's compassion for the lost. And he's the prophet who casts himself into the depths of God's judgment so that we can be rescued and receive his forgiving grace. Seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of God's story helps us to understand how the Bible is all about him. But the other thing that Jesus being at the centre does for us is it gives us clarity about what we are to do. And this is what Jesus next makes clear for his disciples. As he spells out in verse 47, the implications of his suffering and resurrection. He says, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. We're probably familiar with the Great Commission passage at the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel. 
Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, this is Luke's version of that great commission. Jesus says to his disciples that this is what is next. He's achieved salvation. He's paid the penalty for sin as he's died on the cross and risen again. And so now that message and that offer of forgiveness and the call to repentance is to be announced to all the nations. And who is to do that work? Well, look at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. These disciples have now witnessed his suffering and his resurrection. And so now they are to go and tell the world. And for us today, we carry on that mission. It starts here with this special group of eyewitnesses. And of course, there's a difference between those first disciples and us. We're not eyewitnesses in the same way that these first disciples are. But we do still witness. Because the eyewitnesses recorded all of these things for us. And so today, we bear witness to Jesus by saying what the others, the eyewitnesses, have shared with us. And of course, we can also bear witness to the way in which Jesus has worked in our life. And this is how the work of Jesus continues in the world today. And as we are involved in that, we are not alone in the mission because Jesus will send the Holy Spirit to be with his disciples and to lead the mission. He says here, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. And they are told to stay in Jerusalem until the time when they are clothed from on high with power. And this is what we'll see take place in just a few days' time. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples, empowering them. And starting with Peter's first speech, they begin to bear witness to the good news about Jesus, calling people to repent and find forgiveness in Jesus' name. And so here is Jesus entrusting his followers with the task of mission. And for us here at St Aidan's, we're involved in that as well. And we're trying to get better in that. Part of our vision is to be equipped to share the gospel with the culture and community around us. And we do this. We have evangelism workshops and in small groups this term. We're doing training in this. And throughout this term, on Sundays, we're going to think about various ways in which we're all involved in mission. Not only through speaking the gospel, but also through our prayers and our partnership. And our acts of service and our public praise. And you'll hear more about this from next week. Because this is the job that Jesus has given us as his people, as his church. So I hope that we're clear about that as a church that Jesus has commissioned us, that he's given us his spirit, and he now sends us on this mission to announce the good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all his nation, all nations in his name. That's the mission that we're involved in. Next bit, number three, Jesus ascends to reign. Which brings us then to the final scene of Luke's gospel, which shows us the reason why which is because Jesus has been made king and lord over all. So, so far, the disciples have been given clarity about Jesus being raised. They've been given clarity about how they are to continue his mission. And in this final scene, they are given clarity about Jesus' identity as lord over all. And we see this in the final scene as Luke records the events of Jesus' ascension 
Have a look from verse 50. When he had led them out to the, to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them, was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Now again, we're not given a time reference here, uh, but we know that this is at the end of those 40 days that Jesus spent with his disciples. And that period now comes to an end as Jesus ascends. As verse 51 says, While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Now the other places this is recorded is also by Luke in Acts chapter 1. And there it says, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And then two angels appear and speak to the disciples and say, Why are you looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back again in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. Now, the ascension of Jesus is maybe uh, not a doctrine that we think about that often, and maybe it's something that can cause some confusion. I mean, where exactly does Jesus go to, and why does he leave? And there's some mystery here as we think about the ascension, because what it is showing us is how Jesus has gone to this other place that we call heaven, But that place is not a location on earth or above the earth. It's not up in the clouds somewhere. But really it's another dimension that's connected to us here on earth. It's a place where God is and where he lives and he reigns. And then one day heaven and earth will come together. God's space and our space will be married together. And his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. But the main point of the ascension as Luke records it, is not so much about where Jesus goes geographically, but more about that he ascends relationally, that he's lifted up and exalted to the highest place. And sometimes we use that kind of language, don't we? When someone's given a promotion, we say that that person's moving up the ladder. They're going up in the organisation. We don't mean that that they're going physically up in any way, but that they're taking on a higher level of leadership and responsibility. And here, this is what the Ascension is showing us, that Jesus has been given the name that is above every name. He is risen and now ascends to reign as Lord and King over all. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. This is what the disciples see clearly as Jesus ascends. They're given clarity about Jesus' resurrection, that he really was raised to life again. They're given clarity about Jesus' mission, that they are sent to announce the good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And they're given clarity about the identity of Jesus, that he is now Lord over all, over heaven and earth, over you and me. And as they see these things clearly, what's their response? Well, Have a look at verse 52. They worshipped him. That's the only proper response to Jesus when you see him clearly, to give your life to him in worship. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually in the temple praising God. This is the effect of seeing Jesus clearly. Worship, great joy, praising God. And as the story continues into the book of Acts, getting on with the mission that Jesus has given his disciples until he will come again. So, 
How about you? Do you see clearly? And how will you respond to the risen, reigning Lord of all? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these events at Easter. We thank you for the way we see that you truly were raised. We thank you that we now know your identity and we can be so sure of that. We pray that we will be about the mission that you've given us of sharing this good news with everybody around. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.